Hi, I'm lead pastor, Noel Peepgrass. Welcome to the Exeter Valley Church Podcast. Our church plant started in 2021 with the goal of seeing God's kingdom extended in our hometown. You're welcome to join us Sundays at 10 a.m. in our historic building at 218 Pine Street. For more information, head on over to www.exetervalleychurch.com or visit our Instagram page. Thanks for listening. Oh man, it's good to have you guys. Um, Yeah, we have some new faces today. Welcome again. Um, We've been studying the book of Matthew. um, And uh, we started from Matthew 1. I was with a a woman this week. And uh, I guess, I can't, I don't know, she was having some health issues and needed some prayer. And she was like, I started reading Matthew. And then it it like starts with this like list of like names, you know, the, the genealogies. I still remember that was like the first Sunday that we met as a church. We were studying the genealogy in Matthew 1, and uh, I think someone in our family got COVID or something. Like we were, and so not only were we doing that, but we had to do it over like Zoom or something. Anyway, uh, I'm, I'm glad to have come this far in the book of Matthew. Um, you know, we, we, uh, we spent a significant amount of time in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus was just doing a ton of teaching. He shows up in that sermon as teacher, you know? And uh, he's teaching us about the ways of his kingdom. Um, And then as we've been learning, you know, and we're so thankful for the fact that Jesus, he wasn't just the teacher on the mountain. He came down the mountain and he starts to live out the things that he was teaching. And so not only did he teach his kingdom ways, he came down and he started to live them, right? And show them to his disciples. Uh, So... uh, we just finished chapter 8, which is kind of like the, the first chapter after the Sermon on the Mount. Um, in that chapter, we saw five miracles of grace, right? Miracles that Jesus did purely by grace. Uh, in chapter 9, we're going to take a look at five miracles of freedom. Miracles of Jesus that bring us freedom. Uh, Galatians 5.1 says, it's for freedom that Christ has set you free. And I love this about Jesus Jesus did not come. He did not preach this incredible sermon on the mount. He did not live the life that he lived. He did not die the death that he died so that we would be bound to a bunch of silly rules. He came to give us freedom. And I think one of the uh, biggest uh, lies of the enemy is that life with Jesus is a life of bondage to rules, right? And I used to think this as a kid. Like, I, I thought sometimes, like, oh, if I wasn't a Christian, I would do this, 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 and that. And I could maybe have so much more fun you know, but I was getting it all wrong, wasn't I? Like, Jesus died so that we would have freedom, so that we'd be truly free, and so in chapter 9, we're going to take a look at five miracle stories, and they're all stories uh, of freedom. Um, they're also, it's interesting, uh, Jesus, he, he preached, he teached, or he taught in good English, and he healed, right? That was like the main mode of ministry for Jesus, preach, teach, heal, preach, teach, heal, he was always doing these things, and, and that's one of the reasons why we're studying the book of Matthew as a new church, because we want to do ministry the way that Jesus did ministry. And so um, one of the things, though, that we see as Jesus does his ministry, he does it his way, uh, he starts to cause controversy. And in chapter 9, we enter a section where people start to express their displeasure with his ways. Not everybody, but a particular group of people and so, you know, I think it is interesting, you know, um, that as we come to this part of the story where Jesus seems to be drumming up or at least addressing controversy, um, 
that we too will have to wade through some controversy. Like not everything that I will say from this pulpit on a Sunday morning is going to be super popular with the world around us, right? There will be controversy along the way. You know, look, we, we're, we're, not, we're not trying to be controversial for the sake of being controversial, though. Let's get that clear, right? We're not here to start a bunch of arguments. That's not the point. The point is not to argue. Uh, and, and we don't want to be controversial for the wrong reasons or about the wrong things, right? You know, I remember growing up in a really traditional church. It was a period in time where uh, a lot of evangelical American churches went from singing hymns to singing what we called praise choruses, right? Which are more like what, what we sang this morning. And that was like a big deal in the church that I grew up in. It almost, it became a bit of a, we used to call them worship wars. You know, it became like a really big issue. In some ways, that controversy became too big of an issue, I think, in some ways, okay? Well, so sometimes we have this tendency to fight about the wrong things. Do you know what I'm saying? So it's not that we want to avoid all controversy, but we want to make sure that we're, we're like, we're fighting for the right things, you know? But we have to understand that following Jesus will at times ruffle feathers. If, if we think that following Jesus will lead to a life of popularity, we, we have it all wrong. <laughs> uh, in this passage that we're studying today, Jesus was called a blasphemer. They accused him of blasphemy. Man, this is a high charge. I would not want to be accused of blasphemy, you know? Uh, I think I was one time accused of, of what it felt like was blasphemy. And I felt really offended. I felt really on guard about it. Blasphemy is a big deal, right? Um, so we should watch out for our blasphemy. We wouldn't want to blaspheme uh, the word of God. Uh, but it's, it, it is interesting that the, the son of God, the son of man, as he called himself, he came and he did start some controversies. And, and one of the things is that they called him a blasphemer. Um, maybe we should take some comfort in that, though, right? That even Jesus, a man saying the things that he was saying, doing the things that he was doing, got called a blasphemer. I wonder what names they'll call us. I wonder what names you've been called or you might be called on account of Jesus. Anyways, as we continue in this next portion of the book of Matthew, uh, the momentum starts to build towards Jesus' crucifixion. Up to this point, it's kind of like, Jesus, yay, and the crowds are following Jesus. You know, and, and we've said this, right, that people love the teachings of Jesus. They love the teachings of Jesus, but there are certain things that not everybody can get along with this man, Jesus. And this is starting to build, this tension is starting to build, namely, Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. And he was starting to reveal this in his character and, and through his actions, and this is what, what got him accused of blasphemy. So we'll see this in the story. Uh, Jesus offers forgiveness of a lame man. And, uh, and uh, the, the teachers of the law, they, they don't like that. They don't like that a man is offering forgiveness, something they thought only God could do, or, or maybe a priest. So anyway, Cooper, go ahead and go to the, uh, the slide of the passage. So I'm going to work my way through this passage today. Um, and uh, I'll read it a little bit as we go, so just go with me here. I have three points today, so I'll get the points out of the way quickly, and then you'll see them on the slide so you don't forget. Um, the first point is that in this story, we see that Jesus sees their faith. Jesus sees our faith. He sees their faith in the story. The second point is that Jesus forgives sins. Jesus forgives sins. Did you know this is what got people so riled up in this story? The fact that Jesus... A man, so they thought, would forgive sins. The third point is that um, Jesus causes fear. Jesus causes fear. The response of the crowds in this story was astonishment. It was fear. 
And we're going to talk about what a right fear of God looks like uh, this morning. So Jesus sees our faith, Jesus forgives sins, and Jesus causes fear. Uh, chapter 9, verse 1, Jesus stepped into a boat. And I've wondered to myself, seriously, how many times is Jesus going to get into a boat? But Jesus, uh, he stepped into the boat, he crossed over, and came to his own town. So last week, in the last passage, Jesus was in enemy territory. The last thing we've seen Jesus do is uh, heal these demon-possessed men, okay? He went into enemy territory outside of Israel. He healed these demon-possessed men. And did the the townspeople there love Jesus for healing these demon-possessed men? No, they did not love him for doing that. They were mad because he sent the demons into the pigs, and the pigs ran off into the lake and died. And they said, well, there goes our economy. Jesus, thanks a lot. Get out of here, you know? And, and Jesus, in his grace, he leaves. He's like, you know, you don't want me? Okay, I'll go. This is like both instructive and a bit of a warning. Jesus like comes, but he does not force himself on us, does he? You have the chance to receive Jesus, and you have the chance to reject Jesus. And the people of that town, they rejected Jesus, and so Jesus steps back into the boat, and he goes back across uh, to his own town, now, what is his own town? Capernaum is the name of his own town. And if you want a more colorful version of this same passage, you go to Mark chapter 2. Uh, Mark told much more details uh, of the story. But yeah, Capernaum was known as Jesus' own town, I guess, uh, which struck me as interesting because I was like, well, he wasn't born in Capernaum. Like, he was born in Bethlehem. And I thought he was from Nazareth, you know? Like, that's why they call him the Nazarene, right? Um, so I guess those were two of his other towns. Uh, his fourth town was Jerusalem, of course, because he, he died in Jerusalem. He was resurrected in Jerusalem. But Capernaum was the home of most of his ministry. So there's a little town up on the Lake of Galilee. So Jesus returns to his own town. Some men brought to him while he was there a paralyzed man lying on a mat. Now, this is a really interesting part in the story. Uh, if you, it, the reason that it's interesting to me is that if you go to Mark's account, there's a bunch of details And you've probably heard or seen like videos of the story of this man being lowered through a roof to get to Jesus. That's this story. But Matthew leaves out the whole part about the guys digging through the roof and lowering him down uh, on this mat. Matthew left out all of that. He left out all those details. Uh, One of the things that's interesting about Matthew's account, you know, is Mark's version is very colorful. It's like color TV, right? Matthew tends to be very black and white. And it seems like Matthew was more concerned about showing us what Jesus does than showing us about what other believers do. So as we read the Gospel of Matthew, we should be looking at Jesus. This is who Matthew's always pointing to. So he's not concerned about the the believers and lowering this guy down through the roof and all that stuff. It's the same story, but he leaves all of that out so that we would have our focus and our attention on Jesus. Hey, invitation this morning. Let's get our eyes on Jesus. Let's see what this guy is all about. Right? I think seeing him rightly is like the key to our freedom. It's a key to our best life. You know, I love that phrase. Our, live your best life now. Okay, sure, I'll do that. You can do it if you get your eyes on Jesus. You can do it if you get your eyes on Jesus. So, you know, um, I also think that there's something in this little uh, lack of detail that's like for us today. Uh, you know, last week, uh, what, did, what did Jesus call uh, the, the disciples on the boat when they got scared of the storm. He called them cowards. He called them little faiths. Like literally called them little faiths. Like you have no faith. 
That's what he said to them. And sometimes I feel like a little faith. I can relate to those disciples, get really scared when it gets stormy, like I'm not really sure that God's going to show up the way that I think he should or, or, or could, you know? And I just thought, you know, thankfully, uh, we little faiths have a big God, you know, that helps us navigate and <laughs> makes a way for us. And I'm just, uh, yeah, I'm thankful this morning that Matthew's gospel leads us to Jesus, not to the acts of these people, even though I want to talk a little bit about what these people did to get to Jesus, but I'm thankful that, Jesus, that Matthew points us to a big God, points us to Jesus. So here we have this, uh, this if you go over to Mark 2, and I give you permission to go on your phones or whatever to see Mark chapter 2 this morning, but we have this picture of these people who have seen Jesus in this house, and he's teaching. It's basically like a Bible study, right? He's doing maybe like what I'm doing right now, but there was no room for them to get in. And so they come through the roof. I don't know if you've, this, there's a great scene in The Chosen, and hopefully like The Chosen is going to get a lot more hits because I keep referencing it here. And I, I didn't have time to show the video today. It's, it's a five minute scene, but if you want to go, you could just YouTube just that scene uh, to give you like a visual of what's happening. And I was talking with Moggy last night at dinner because Moggy was trying to tell me that. It was like, no, they just removed a couple tiles from the roof. It, but in some, in some translations, it says they dug through the roof. They literally dug through the roof to get their friend to Jesus. And I thought, like, man, this story is like, it is not sanitized at all. It is gritty. It's dirty. I mean, imagine if someone just started digging through the roof, you know? There's stuff flying everywhere. And, and like, how impolite. I mean, how impolite. Can you imagine? Like, if somebody just dug through the roof right now, I think I would probably scold them. Like, what are you doing? What are you doing? You know? Oh, yeah, great that you're, you're getting to Jesus, but that's not how you do it. You know what I mean? That's probably what I would say. You're being destructive, you know? Um, but they're so desperate to see their friend healed that they, they destroy someone's roof in order to get their friend to Jesus. They interrupted a Bible study, for goodness sake, to get their friend to Jesus. It's, talk about blasphemy, you know? But you know what? Uh, one of the things that I was realizing about faith this week is that faith is needy. We've been talking about weakness, you know? Faith is weak. A lot of weakness theme coming on up this morning. So I'll say that. Faith is weak. Faith is needy. Faith is being lame, having no pathway to health, having no medical care, having all, like think of all the ramifications of being lame in ancient Israel. Faith is, I got to get my friend to Jesus, because he's the only one that can do anything about this situation, right? So faith is super needy, you know? And man, I have wrestled so much these last few weeks as we study the healings of Jesus, and I, I've wrestled so much, like, why don't I see these things happen more often? Why does it seem so rare? And it's awesome to have a testimony, because we need to be reminded that Jesus does still do that stuff, you know? Jesus does still answer our prayers. He does still do miracles. But we miss it. Why do we miss it? I think one of the reasons we miss it is we're not very needy, are we? We're just not very needy. We're so self-sufficient. In part because of our wealth, right? And even the poorest of us is wealthy by the world standards, would have been wealthy by this contextual standard, right? But we're just not very, uh, very needy, you know? I mean, the American way is self-sufficiency, is it not? 
Um, and, and it's not all bad economically and socially to be self-sufficient, but spiritually, our neediness is our greatest currency. Faith is needy. If you're not needy, you'll never see Jesus move in power the way he moved in power in this story. These people are so needy, they dug a hole through a roof to get to Jesus. It's astonishing. So anyway, I, I guess uh, I'm asking, am I needy enough for Jesus to show up? How do I need to get more needy? What could I do to get more needy so that I could see the power of God more? You know, I, I was asking myself also, like, would I endure the social consequences these friends had to endure to do that? Like, I probably would be like, oh, I don't want to do that. I don't want to dig through the roof. Like, I don't know. But they're just desperate. Their only solution is to get their friend to Jesus. It's their only solution. I just thought, you know, we see God show up when we have our moments of deepest need. You know what I mean? When we really need him, that's when we see him. There's a connection between our need and him showing up. So faith is super needy. I don't like to be needy, but I need to get a little bit more needy if I want to see Jesus move. The other thing that really strikes me in this story is that uh, it says in verse 2, some men brought to him a paralyzed man lying on a mat. Then all Mark's details about the roof and all that stuff. And then it picks back up. When Jesus saw their faith. When Jesus saw their faith. You know, we think of faith oftentimes as something that's on the inside. Like unseeable. Almost invisible. But it says that Jesus saw their faith. You know, how did he see their faith? He saw their faith through their actions. We've, we've touched on this a bit, where there's this way in which uh, salvation is something that happens on the inside of it, right? But there's a response on the outside to the salvation that we've been granted on the inside, right? And, and so that, I think that's what we're seeing here. See, faith, it's a verb. It's an action. Faith is not just something that rests in our heart. And Jesus saw their actions. Notice, too, he didn't see the damage they just caused, he didn't see their intrusion. He didn't see their neediness. He saw their faith. Jesus, uh, he sees our faith. One of the highest values in the kingdom is faith, right? One of the highest values in God's kingdom. Nothing seems to please Jesus more than faith. Faith in his goodness. This is like what we should all strive this is what we should aim for, faith in his goodness. It says uh, in the word that without faith, it's impossible to please God. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. But you little face have hope because with just a mustard seed of faith, with just a tiny bit of faith, you can do what? You can move mountains. So there's hope for us little face. Yes, without faith, it's impossible to please God, but all we need is just a little bit of faith. Just a mustard seed can move mountains. You know, uh, the key, though, in this story is what they did with their faith, right? They took their faith to Jesus. And taking our faith to Jesus is the key. That's what we do. We take our faith to Jesus, and we watch him do the work. Another thing I noticed in this story is that um, uh, faith needs friends, Faith needs friends. Have you ever felt like you just couldn't muster any more faith? Maybe you've contended for something for years and years and years. You've been praying on your knees. You've had the conversations. You know, you've fasted. 
you've worshipped, whatever it is that you think you should do in order to see resolution. But sometimes faith just needs friends. You know, I, I love the intercessory nature of the friends in this story, you know? They're, it's so amazing. Like, don't, we all need friends like these friends who would tear through a roof to get their friend to Jesus. See, he had uh, lame legs, but he didn't have lame friends. <laughs> Thank you for laughing. I thought that was kind of cute. Yeah, his friends, they knew he couldn't get there on his own. You know what I mean? There's no way for a lame man to come through the door. The house is crowded. They knew he couldn't get there on his own. Um, you know, uh, I, I, in a previous life, I did some personal training. And uh, I'll never forget one day, I, used, I like training in groups best because there's like camaraderie in small groups, right? And I'm, I'm more introverted. I don't like having like one-on-one -on -one conversations all day long. They get a little bit socially awkward for me. So anyway, training in small groups, and one day we're doing this really hard part of the workout. Everyone's doing it, and one of my clients looks up at me, and she's like, I would never do this if you guys weren't all here watching me, you know? <laughs> but isn't that how it is? Like, we need camaraderie. Like, to do the hard things that God is leading us into, like, we need camaraderie. You know that there's actually research on this, and I, when I was, like, just right after college, I read a research paper that, uh, that studied uh, how hard someone worked out in an empty room all by themselves. And then they put one person in the corner just sitting there, not coaching or anything, and they found that this person gave four times more effort training, which is one person sitting in the corner of the room, you know? <laughs> Faith needs friends, doesn't it? <laughs> it's, it's so true, you know? And, and look, you know, COVID, our deconstruction culture, uh, the internet, They've all made physical church attendance uh, like, and just participation in the church. Like, it's almost optional now, right? Like, you could, you could go listen to a better preacher, you know? Like, no offense, Sean, you could maybe find better, like, worship leaders on the internet somewhere. <laughs> no offense. I could, I could blast myself, like, without asking permission, but I just threw you under the bus without asking. Yeah, but you know what I'm saying? Like, you guys, like, like you being here, you participating here, like, it won't save you. But I'm telling you, you need the faith of your friends in order to get to Jesus. And, like, if there's one thing in, that was instilled in me in the childhood, it was, the, it was the principle of showing up to church every week, you know? I know you're like, Noel, you're the pastor. Like, you have to show up every week. You were the pastor's kid. You had to show up every week. It's true. And I didn't always like it, you know? And I sometimes wish that I didn't have to. But looking back, I'm like, man, what a gift. Because I need friends, I need a community. I can't follow Jesus on my own, and neither, neither can you, and neither could this lame man. You know, Hebrews 10, 24, 25, it says, uh, it says it really well. It says, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. This is what we do. This is one of the things that the church is about. It's encouraging each other, even if at times it requires digging a hole in the roof and getting our friend to Jesus. Faith needs friends. We can't, we can't do this on our own. Now, uh, we're to the part of the story where Jesus really gets himself in trouble. Uh, in, in the second part of verse 2, he says, Take heart, son. Your sins are forgiven. That, um, that word, son, um, it, it's like very uh, kiddish. Like some translations read little boy or child. So he's using very like fatherly language, you know, 
Um, and I don't know like what age this person was, but maybe he was like relatively young. The passage calls him a man, though. So it's very fatherly, like caring language that Jesus is, is using. He says, take heart, son. It's like Jesus knows what's going on in his heart, you know? Sometimes all we can see is the physical. Jesus first and always sees like the inside first. He goes right down to the root and he does it right here. And that's an important fact that's going to help us understand why he forgives the guy before he heals the guy. So the next thing he says, your sins are forgiven. Now this is kind of weird, right? Do you think that this is why the people dug through the roof so that Jesus could forgive the guy's sins? He's probably... He's probably happy to have his sins forgiven, I would imagine. Aren't we all happy to have our sins forgiven, right? But I think he was like, I don't know, like, cool, Jesus, but, you know, like, I can't walk. I can't move. I'm paralyzed. You know, I I came for this, and you went for this. That's how Jesus is, you know? He always, he, he seems to know our deepest pains, And uh, when you're reading the Bible, you have to read, like, between the lines with Jesus, you know? Otherwise, you'll miss things, because Jesus goes to places that are are beyond our sight. And so, um, it says, at this, in verse 3, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, this fellow is blaspheming, knowing their thoughts. Jesus said, why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Again, Jesus, he just, he knows what you're thinking before you think it, right? He says, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? So we'll focus on that a little bit here, this, this idea, why, why did Jesus forgive the man's sins, you know? Um, now, put yourself in ancient Israel. I know, very hard to do, but this is what we got to do if we're really going to see what's happening in Scripture. So in ancient Israel, and, and maybe there's still some of this that goes around in different cultures today, not so much our culture, probably, but they knew or they understood that sin was at the root of all the world's brokenness right? All of evil had its root back to sin. Remember, the garden was perfect. The garden of Eden contained no flaw. There was no sickness. There was no death. Everything was perfect in the garden. So for an ancient Jew, someone living in ancient Israel, um, it's, it's quite possible that this young man was paralyzed and thought that or lived with the idea that maybe there's some sin that's caused this paralysis. If we look back at the Old Testament stories, there's a story of Miriam, just one example. Uh, Miriam was, I think, Moses' sister, okay? Uh, Miriam was having a bad attitude at one point. She was grumbling behind Moses' back at one point in the story, and it says in the story that God put a rash on her. She got sick because of her sin, her sin, and then she confessed, repented her sin, and she got healed, right? So they would have lived with some of these stories. Now, this is a new, it's a very nuanced concept in uh, the Bible, because uh, we also know stories of like uh, Job, right? Uh, the whole story of Job is a man who's afflicted with all kinds of things, but were they any fault of his own? No, that's the whole point of the story, right? In fact, Job had bad friends, and Job's friends were trying to tell him, look, the reason you're, you're sick and you're struggling is because of all this sin. And Job was like, nope, I stand before God. No, that's not why, right? So we see both and in scripture is what I'm trying to say, but so, so at the same time, I think it's possible that this young man had walked around as a paralytic and been told or been treated like his paralysis was a result of sin. Again, Jesus, seen beneath the surface, seen beneath the physical to the spiritual part of this man's uh, condition. Now, he, this guy is lame. He can't walk, paralyzed. Jerusalem, the site of the temple, 
70 miles away, okay? Now, if you were a Jew in that day, how did you normally get your sins forgiven? If you had a sin problem, how did you normally get your sins uh, forgiven? You had to go to the temple and present a sacrifice, right? You could read all about it in Leviticus 4. So here's this man, maybe living, I, I don't know exactly, the text doesn't exactly say this, but maybe living with the shame of sin, maybe that this sin had like ended with his paralysis. Just imagine the life that this guy's living. And Jesus comes into this story. Are you starting to see why Jesus didn't heal him first? Are you starting to see why Jesus would want to forgive his sins? See, this, the ritual would have been that if you were a Jew in that time, in order to get your sins forgiven, you had to go to the temple, right? And you had to sacrifice an animal. You had to get all the way to Jerusalem. You had to buy an animal. You had to stand in line for a long time. And then you get to the, the priest who's like probably like covered in blood because he's been sacrificing animals all day long. You offer your sacrifice, and then the priest is able to forgive your sins before God, right? This was the only way they knew to atone for their distance in relationship with God. It's the only option that they had. This man, I don't know that this man has that option. So Jesus sees him at his point of deepest need, right? And this process, just to say, this process would have brought great joy for the people of Israel. Like, it seems like a burden to us because we know that we have a new high priest, so we don't have to go to the temple anymore because we have Jesus. Jesus is our temple, right? Jesus is our atonement. This is part of the good news. You gotta, you gotta get a feel for the whole story, everything that's going on. So those, those Jews, they would have like rejoiced in their ability to go be forgiven at the temple. They would have left the temple rejoicing, singing all their favorite songs, worshiping the Lord, and, and being so thankful that he'd made a way for them uh, to get right with him again despite their sin. But here's this lame man with no way to get to the temple, with no way to make the offering that maybe in his heart he feels like he's got to make. So here's Jesus entering this situation. And again, like, are you starting to see why maybe Jesus decided to forgive his sins before he, he attempted to heal him? Well, see, uh, the forgiveness of sins is, uh, is, is, like, super important in this story, Right? Who did, the, who did the ancient Israelites, the Jews of that time, who did they believe alone could forgive sins? God, right? You needed a priest to get you before God in the Holy of Holies to forgive you of your sins. Not, no human could forgive you of your sins. After all, sin was about a fracturing relationship between you and God. It wasn't so much about what you'd done to your brother, even if you stole your neighbor's donkey or whatever, that wasn't so much the deal, right? Sin is between you and God. So here Jesus is, is offering forgiveness of sins. Some of those teachers, those Bible teachers, must have been thinking, well, dude, sin isn't even between, like, you and this man. Sin's between this man and God. Who are you to forgive sins? Yeah, well, who is he? <laughs> That's the point of the story, isn't it? This is what got Jesus in so much trouble, Jesus has divine authority. Remember, Matthew, he's trying to get his Jewish audience who've been enduring persecution for their faith, for their conversions. He's trying to get them to see, this is the Messiah that you waited your whole life for. And not only your life, but your grandma's life and your great-grandma's life. And da 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 All the way for hundreds of years, we've been waiting for this man to come, the God-man. Jesus has divine authority and that's, they did, but see, the, the, the religious teachers, they miss it. They miss this about Jesus. And that's why they accuse him of blasphemy. Because if you're not God, 
and you're going around forgiving sins, that would be blasphemous, wouldn't it? <laughs> and we probably, like, we should be concerned about blasphemy, right? That's important. We're not just all, throw, who cares about blasphemy, right? Like, these were serious people. They're like me, the religious leaders, you know? So they cared about blasphemy. And if, if Jesus wasn't God, he would have been blaspheming. But he was God. He was revealing his, his divine authority by forgiving this guy's sins. It's the most controversial thing that Jesus has ever said or done. Jesus, he didn't go to the cross because of like his faith or his beliefs. He didn't go to the cross for wrong teaching. He didn't even go to the cross so much for being a threat to Rome. Rome didn't necessarily even think he was a threat. He went to the cross because he claimed to be God. Jesus has divine authority. He calls himself uh, the son of man. I find that so ironic. Jesus, the phrase he uses in Matthew's gospel, I think 30 times to refer to himself. He always says it in a context where he's revealing his divine authority, which is so interesting because son of man, that should reveal his humanity, isn't it? It shouldn't it, right? That's how I think of it. But Jesus always used that to reveal his, his, uh, that he was the God-man, right? I think that's what Jesus was saying when he said son of man. He's saying, I'm the God-man, the God in flesh who came to dwell among us. So anyway, Matthew's trying to show us Jesus' divinity in this story. He's pointing us here to the authority of Jesus. His authority comes from his messiahship, from his godship, from his divinity. He's not just a great teacher. He's the primary source. He does not draw on anyone else's authority. He's the primary source. He's got the whole story. He's got all the goods. He's so much more than just a great teacher, right? Remember all the teachers of that day, they would have resorted to a higher authority. They would have quoted a higher authority. Jesus says, I'm the highest authority. He's so much more than just a great teacher. He's not just a prophet, you guys. He was a prophet, but he's not just a prophet. He's the fulfillment of the prophecies that were written years and years and years ago. If you were here this Sunday, we talked about how many quarters you could lay over Texas, and if you picked one out, like there's a ridiculously small chance that all these things happened by sheer chance. Jesus fulfilled a ton of prophecies. He's not just a prophet. He's the fulfillment of the prophecies of old. He's not just a moral sage. He's not just like a great moral teacher. That's cool if you, if you like the, the teachings of Jesus. But Jesus is so much more than just a moral sage with a, with a bunch of like nice pithy ways or sayings. He's the eternal judge. He holds that authority to, to judge right and wrong. And one day he'll stand before us in judgment. He's not just a man. He's not just a man. He's the son of God. This is what Matthew is saying about Jesus in this passage. He's not just a priest, right? He's not just a priest like this guy would have needed at the temple. He's the high priest, the great high priest with authority from God. His authority is the same as God's authority. That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying. That's why he forgave this guy's sins first before he thought about healing him. It's by this authority that Jesus tells this man, get up, take your mat, and go home. And I love it. You know, whenever I pray a prayer for somebody's healing, I, man, I always, like, conjure up so much strength and, like, try to say it right, you know, and try to pray as hard as I can. Jesus is always so simple in his declarations. Notice that Jesus does not ask anybody for the power to heal this man. Jesus commands his healing. Get up, take the mat, and go home. <clears throat> That part of the story is really critical. See, what, what's happened here is Jesus, um, he's demonstrated like 
he, he's spoken to an, uh, an, an unseen by forgiving, right? He's addressed what's beneath the surface by forgiving. But when he heals this man physically, what he's doing is demonstrating that there's like flesh and bones on his authority. He's like, oh, you don't think I can forgive sins? Which is easier to do, right? That's what he says. Which is easier to do? Tell a man his sins are forgiven or tell a man to get up and walk? Which is easier to do, by the way? Forgiving someone's sins sounds easier to do because there's no proof that you did it or not, right? There's no proof. But there would be proof if you heal a man physically, right? And so Jesus takes it the next step. Like, you, oh, you don't recognize who I am. You don't recognize who I am. So here it is. Get up, take your mat, go home. Super simple. See, when you're the like, primary source, you don't need any like, fancy incantations, no dancing, no tongues, right? You tell the man, get up, take your mat, and go home. It's crazy. Some of the most uh, simple things are the most crazy uh, things about Jesus. Coming to the end here, in conclusion, how do these people respond to what had just happened? How did they respond to what just happened? We, we read last week that the town, that, well, first the disciples in the boat after the storm was, uh, was quelled, they responded in astonishment, right? They were like, whoa, Jesus, this is awesome, you know? Then he, he takes the demons, sends them into the pigs, and the townspeople, they don't respond that way. They're upset. They're like, Jesus, get out of here. You're going to ruin our economy. Get the heck out of here, right? Here in this passage, we see that Jesus causes fear, like really deep fear of God fear. Not like you got frightened in the dark fear. Not like a fear like of abuse or attack. Fear as like reverence, that kind of fear. The kind of fear that, that, that wells up respect, right? Jesus causes this kind of fear. It says in verse 8, when the crowd saw what he had done, they were filled with awe. That maybe is what your translation says. Other translations say fear there. Awe, fear. They praised God who had given such authority to man. So their response to what Jesus had done, the fear that welled up in them, it caused them to pray. Praise. Sorry, left the, the zzz off of that. It caused them to praise. It caused them to worship. Good fear, godly fear, results in worship any and every time. We're gonna uh, we're gonna end today in uh, in worship, you know. And and why did these people like why why were they like in fear? Why did they have this sense of awe? They had this sense of awe because of the authority that had been given to man, the authority that had been given to this man, and their response was worship. I don't know if you guys are basketball fans or anything, but um, there's this basketball commentator named Marv Albert. Some of you familiar with Marv Albert? And he like coined the phrase, with authority, right? And slam dunk, boom, with authority. The slam dunk is kind of like the ultimate way to make your authority known in basketball, isn't it, right? And dunking on people, that's like one of the best things that you can do. So Marv Albert would always say, with authority. And I think that's what the crowd was saying, right? If Marv Albert had been commentating this situation and that day, he would have seen the man get up and he would have said, with authority, you know? Uh, but authority, it does like, it does, it's like a dunk, you know? It kind of, it's like better than just a layup, right? It is better than a layup because it instills some intimidation, you know? It does bring with it that, that bit of fear, you know what I'm saying? And that's what's happening right here and that's why their response was awe. This fear of God filled them. Someone can tell the kids they can come back in now. 
Anyway, all right. So I think there's this deep sense of reverence produced in the onlookers. And, and the, the Bible talks about fear of the Lord a lot, right? In the Old Testament, it says uh, in Proverbs, fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. There's a lot of points in Scripture where fear of the Lord, that's a good thing. To have a healthy fear of the Lord is a good thing. And in this sense, it's, it's a good and a totally right response to the Lord. See, Jesus in this story, because of his authority, he causes fear. Not the bad kind, but the good kind that leads us to worship. And uh, again, in this story, these people responded to Jesus in awe. They responded with praise. And I wanted to invite us this morning to respond to him the same way. To consider how he's met us in our moment of weakness, in our weakened condition, in our lame condition. Jesus has met us there. And he does, he, uh, because he's God, he does offer the forgiveness of the sins. And, and isn't it great that we no longer have to go to the temple 70 miles away and stand in a long line? While whole, and, and that's part of the story I don't get. You're holding the lamb the whole way? Do they have collars or like cages for these things? Anyway, you're holding the lamb the whole way. You got, well, yeah, but you still got to get in the line anyways. Sorry, I digress into details. But man, aren't we glad? I'm glad that I don't got to go to a temple and a bloody priest to have my sins paid for. I'm glad that the great high priest lives inside of me. And he's got the authority to forgive my sins. He's got the authority to speak a, a better word over creation, to restore brokenness of all kinds. So this morning, as we, uh, as we respond in awe to this Jesus that we've read about, we've got a couple options, okay? You, hopefully, you all stand to your feet and sing. Uh, we also have the table, uh, the Lord's Supper, ready for us. Remember, this is how we remember the death and resurrection of Jesus. We do this every week, but man, I hope it doesn't lose its uh, punch just because we do it every week. This is like the most powerful sacrament that we do together as we join in the fellowship of the suffering of Jesus. Not only do we join in his suffering and his death, we join in the new life, the eternal life that he came resurrected in. Also, um, I'll be standing over here. If you want to come forward for prayer, I'd love to pray with you this morning. Uh, Let's stand to our feet and worship in response uh, out of a healthy fear of, of the God who sees us in our condition who senses our deepest need. Let's pray. God, we thank you that, um, I, I do, Lord, I thank you that you care about like all of us. You care very much about our electricity bills. You care very much about our retirement finances. You care very much about whatever's wrong with our bodies, inside our bodies, outside our bodies. You care so much about that. You also care just as much about what's on the inside of us. And sometimes we get stuck on the outside, but you always go deeper to the inside, Lord. And I just, I pray this morning if there's anything going on in our hearts that's like so deep that no one's seen it or no one's got to it before, we just invite you by your spirit this morning, Lord, to get to that spot in our hearts. And I pray that we'd be moved in faith to reach out, to quote, unquote, dig a hole through the roof in faith coming to you, Lord, to have our needs met. Jesus, it's in your name that we pray and and give thanks this morning. Amen.